And we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. All right, so continuing along, we are going through, uh, we are near the, uh, the, the early 20s of, of Surah Ali Imran, but I had promised we would begin the class um, by addressing uh, Mohsen Ansari's question as well as Asha's question. But in both cases, I forgot the questions. Uh, Asha, do you remember your question from, from the end of class yesterday? Yes, I'm My question was just, um, I remember we were talking about um, like how in Christianity, how you kind of have missionaries and everybody can kind of just um, teach whoever about the religion. And my question was, I felt like um, Christianity, it was a little bit less structured. And my question was, and for Islam, was there some kind of credentials or is it kind of the same? Okay, good question. That's a really, really rich question. So, <clears throat> so yeah, Protestant Christianity tends to be far, far less structured than Catholic and in Eastern Orthodox, right? Both Eastern Orthodox and Catholic uh, Christianity have a whole superstructure with a credentialing system and everything. And in, in, so like literally, you know, I work at a Catholic university with, you know, with all types of Jesuit priests. And, and so then they're answerable to the Catholic church through, through branch. And then there's the city of Chicago's Catholic church, which is answerable through a different branch and such. Whereas in Protestant Christianity, um, there isn't very much of a structure except, for example, in Lutheran Christianity, which sort of is like Catholic without, without revering Virgin Mary. So, so in Islam, there is a whole tradition of scholars and the fundamental credential, what makes a scholar a scholar is literally that a scholar is recognized by other scholars as a scholar. That's really what it comes down to. And our PhD system in our society is sort of a similar to that, that you're fundamentally a PhD when other PhDs grant you a PhD. Now we do have, as we saw in this Surah, different references to, to the people of knowledge and such. And, and I've often tried to, to make sure we don't automatically uh, assume that all the scholars or people we identify as scholars are being spoken about here. Um, uh, but the terms that we have in our society, uh, like sheikh, um, uh, imam, uh, maulana, uh, all these, you know, start in particular times of history. Mule is a, is a term that you find in North African Islam and such. Uh, maulana, for example, uh, has two meanings. And it comes down to what the, the speaker is, is, is seeking to say. One is our master, and the other one is our servant. So I have a, I have a teacher uh, with whom we go through Arabic, and he himself went through Al-Azhar, and he also has a PhD in Islamic studies. And all of his friends call him Molana, but, but not out of respect, but to make fun of him uh, by basically saying, you're our servant. But it, you, there isn't a credentialing system where you're officially a Molana. 
And likewise, alim is an official term that we would translate, or I shouldn't say official term, it's a term we would translate as scholar, but different traditional Islamic schools will have different criteria for, for giving someone the degree of an alim. In the same way, you know, you have bachelor's, master's, PhD, etc. Um, so there isn't consistency that way. Where there is consistency, however, and uh, the same thing applies for sheikh. So any, does anyone know um, what the word sheikh literally means? Anyone? Arabs, you want to share? Or? Say it again. Malahat? Or? Yeah, basically the one with gray hair. That's sheikh. And, and so when I was a kid growing up uh, in the 70s, and those of you who might be closest to my peers, probably Asma, I don't know if anyone else here would be there. Uh, maybe maybe uh, Mahan and Stephanie. But uh, what was the term sheikh used for in our society back in the 70s? Anyway, now? The Arab oil sheiks. So these are all the people who own the oil wells. That's what the term was. That's how I always understood the term until, you know, people in the masjid started using the term sheikh. So what is common, however, is, uh, is the, there is some commonality in the basic curriculum. And uh, I don't know if Dr. Mahan is here. I don't know if MM is Dr. Mahan or someone else, but um, he, he, he's uh, uh, much more of an expert on this these days than I am. But um, uh, in terms of like, what is the foundational curriculum or the foundational studies, there is much more uniformity on that, you know, East and West. But in terms of the credentialing system, it doesn't seem like there's consistency. So what are ways people get credentials? One is, you, one is you go through a supposedly traditional Muslim seminary, which would be starting from west to east. It would be Qaydawiyin uh, in Morocco, Al-Azhar in Cairo, uh, a couple of the schools in Damascus, uh, and then uh, uh, Medina University is actually very, very young. Um, and then move to the further east, and the biggest, the, the most influential ones would be, for example, the Madrasa at Deoband, and there's a few others. And then, and so one way is to get credentialing by going through a school's whole curriculum. Another way to get credentialing is, or supposed credentialing, is that you sit with teachers who basically officially give you permission, different levels of permission to, to teach uh, certain books. And, and then uh, ultimately still at the end of the day, you're a scholar when scholars recognize you as a scholar. You know, very often in our society, Islam in America, someone who gets regarded as a scholar is usually someone who's trained in Islamic law uh, as opposed to all the other fields. And, and, and so, a lot of times we might go to that person with all types of questions which are outside of the realm of expertise of that particular scholar. And, and then, and, and so, 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 so fundamentally it's just this giant big mix. So when someone is looking uh, either to study, that's one thing, but if they're looking for to whom do I go to for answers, it's a process of looking for the people whom you trust you know, people who seem to know your world. And that sometimes takes trial and error. I mean, I've had, I've been blessed with numerous excellent teachers through the years. And I've also been blessed with numerous teachers who are tyrannical. Uh, uh, 
uh, as well. So, so I'll show. Uh, so the short answer is there isn't a consistent cred uh, credentialing system. Let me know if you have a follow-up question or anything. Well, you're muted now, but otherwise, we can continue. Does anyone else have any other questions about anything before we jump back into the IOT? Who is the greatest scholar of all time? Well, I mean, that would be the prophet, peace be upon him. And then the canyons. Uh, I mean, do you have a, a, a hunt? Do you have an answer to that question? No, um, you know, obviously, outside of the prophets of Allah and the companions and the Tabin and Tabin, like, uh, you know, there is, um, there is this hadith that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know, every 100 years, there'll be the, the reviver. Um, who is the last reviver, in your opinion? Oh, that's a nice question. Okay, so, so yeah, the hadith is, is that every century or so, someone's going to come along. And uh, there isn't necessarily consistent opinion in determining who that is. And so that's one interesting point. It's usually way after the fact where people look back and point to this person or that person. And then on top of that, there have been people in history who've literally claimed to be that person of that generation. So Al-Ghazali, Imam Al-Ghazali, is, is said to have claimed to have been that person of his generation. Yeah, Rumi he's my is favorite. To, your favorite? <laughs> MashaAllah. And no, then, no. Uh, uh, so uh, a lot of people say the last one was Shah Waliullah. What are your thoughts on that? So Shah Waliullah was definitely one of the, the, the more recent ones. Uh, it's harder to determine you know, when we get more recent, just because we don't know their impact. So some people, Ibrahim Abu Rabi, who is Dr. Malahat's old teacher, and I think Dr. Malahat's old teacher, um, he, he suggested that uh, this Turkish scholar, Badiyo Zaman Said Nursi, is the most recent Mujaddid. And, and I forgot when he died, when he died, like 1967 or something, somewhere there. I mean, he's very, very recent. And He's written so many pages of scholarship that it's about as tall as I am, or as tall as you are. And, and so the Gulen movement traces itself, not officially, but in terms of ideas, back to, back to Nursi. And the Gulen movement's been crippled quite a bit because of the Erdogan government, but um, um, they're easily one of the most active Muslim organizations throughout the whole, throughout the whole world in yeah, 1960. So some people point to him. Uh, it's possible that it could be, um, you know, some of these other revivalists. Some people like to point to Maududi. Some people like to point to Sayyid Qutb. I don't think either of them have produced as much scholarship as Nursi has, but their influence, however, cannot be denied. And I think the there is another uh, uh, viewpoint is that, you know, from the scholars, that there's maybe a multiple... Mujad, you know, yeah. available on the same time. So mm -hmm. since we belongs to the South Asian region, so we are well, we are aware of, but there are some others are. Uh, I mean, if you heard from Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, then um, uh, you know the his teacher. I forgot his name. Well, bin Baya. Yeah, Bin Baya. He, he mentioned that you know he's one of the most uh, profound jurists at his time, today's time. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, I know. I'm curious as to who the first American sort of, you know, American-based scholar slash revivalist will be. Sort of going. It's a, it's a tough one. I mean, so in terms of personal inspiration, Malcolm X is probably at the top of that list. Yeah. Yeah, because without Malcolm X, there's no Muhammad Ali, and then, uh, uh, but then on top of that, in terms of inspiring people to go into scholarship, Hamza Yusuf is probably near the top of that list. Right, the sheer number of people that he has inspired. Um, and I mean, a lot of people um, in today's political thinking, a lot of people don't like Hamza Yusuf and the directions he's taken, but you can't deny how many people have been inspired to go into traditional scholarship because of Hamza Yusuf. But Allah knows best. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of people in our society that get zero attention. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, in in, uh, in uh, Pakistan nowadays, you know, the, the father of Taqi uh, Uswani Saab, uh, yeah, you know, Shafi. Shafi is, is actually one of them. Is actually people consider him is his time, uh, and Shafi Usman is you know Taqi Usman is also. But the problem is that you know when you talk about only about one fiqh and one madrasa and one school of thought, then you're kind of like making yourself uh, cohesive or groupthink. Sure, so sure. Yeah. that is that is one of the. But you know that if you see Taqi Uswani in Indo-Pak region or Arab world also, he is well respected and. Um, you know, gain his, uh, you know, trust on, uh, on the Jewish level. Mm-hmm. In between, in between Shah Waliullah and Bediouzaman Said Nursi in Sub-Saharan Africa, there's Osman Danfudi, also known as Osman Danfodio. He's another person that's had tremendous, tremendous development and, and influence, but all knows best. Any other questions before we jump back in? Basif, are you speaking? All right. On that note, let's uh, let's uh, get a, into. There's a question. There are questions in the chat. Oh snap! Okay, oh, let's snap. see. Uh, so Athan is asking, "Who's a great scholar of our time?" Sodom. Would a reviver refer to a scholar specifically? Could it not be a figure who brings attention to Islam? That's also a really, really good question. I mean, because so so much of our, t- our our tradition, our practice is a scholarly tradition that then influences practice. That's why the focus is usually there. But Salahuddin's name is often very very high in terms of the inspiration uh, that that he gives. Uh, I don't think there's still yet a good, truly honest biography of of Salahuddin. There's a lot of good biographies, but they all tend to romanticize. Uh, him, including biographies from the West, as as for his chivalry and battle and all those things. But the one the one you suggested to Sarim and Musab, the, the Darus Salam version, the three volume. This yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, I mean there are some. That's that's uh, I think that that is a good one. Um, uh, but and none that feels like it's really received like the academic critical thinking rigor. Uh, where do previous prophets' companions stand in the hierarchy of Islam? Are they ranked above the scholars in Islam? For example, Sahaba of Isa al-Islam. Oh, this is a nice question. There's a narration that there will be scholars who have in themselves the knowledge of prophets. And so in terms of quantity of knowledge, perhaps, and Allah knows best, it might be possible for a scholar to have greater knowledge than a previous prophet but fundamentally, there are two different classes of people, right? Um, it's it's a comparison that might lead to more uh, somersaults trying to force an opinion rather than actually coming up with a, a consistent answer. 
So it's like, you know, the, the previous prophets are all one specific class of human being. And then in the same way in Sunni tradition, the Sahaba are a different class of human being and Shia tradition, the Imams are a different class of human being. It's harder to compare. It's almost like saying, you know, who's, who's the greatest basketball player of all time, you know, it's really, you can't actually make the comparison. Especially if you don't. Okay, having said that, uh, let us finally get to our ayah, inshallah. So, continuing, Ali Imran. So, we looked at this ayah, uh, this deen of Allah is with, uh, this uh, deen with Allah is, is Islam. And then we spoke about the consequences of knowledge and such. And then we had most of our discussion last time was on the obligation <clears throat> to that the prophet had, peace be upon him, to convey the message. And part of our discussion was, is this an obligation on all of us to convey the message? Uh, I will suggest that it is a collective obligation. It is a collective obligation that we have to bring the message to everyone. Is it an individual obligation? Uh, I think to a certain degree it is, but not in the sense of just active thatwa. Uh, meaning that you do have an obligation in some capacity to, to illustrate Islam to your neighbors. And that usually is by way of generosity. But as a collective obligation, I think this is a collective obligation. Uh, Zishan, are you raising your hand or are you just applauding? Sorry, wrong button. I'm having a moment, as they say. Um, it, would you say this is this this is the one which is interpreted most uh, widely, where people take the extent that you know they they uh, harass your neighbors to like, hey, you must convert. I'm taking. Away. I think I think I mean uh, so I forgot which priest it was um, who was. Who was, I can't remember who it is, but he was, uh, this priest was arguing that Islam is going to take over the world uh, because everywhere he would go, somebody would want to introduce Islam to him. And so he gave the example, he was in a cafe in France and the Moroccan waiter tried to introduce Islam to him. And so I do think there is an evangelical impulse that Muslims have in their DNA, that Christians have in their DNA, where we want everyone to have this message. And it doesn't mean that all these people who are giving the message are, are remotely good at it, but this does seem to be something very, very common. I don't know of cases where, you know, someone says to their neighbor, you better become Muslim, otherwise I'm going to, you know, go after you. That, I mean, I don't think, maybe I think that's more of a caricature. But uh, I do think that is a, a common sentiment that people have. And having said that, I've wondered why. And I think part of it, you know, why is it that Muslims and Christians specifically have this, as opposed to Buddhists, Jews, Hindus, and such. There was an evangelical period in, in early Judaism that seemed to end right around the time of Jesus, peace be upon him. Um, and then since then, Judaism has not been an evangelical religion. Uh, but I do think that some of it just has to do with the fact that we have a beloved person at the center. And, and that's what inspires us to want everyone to have this. 
And there's other things too. There's also, you know, uh, a sentiment of uh, low self-esteem that I think drives some of the sentiment too. That all right, we've been conquered in every single way in the world, but at least we have Islam. You know, I think those are those are some of the elements too. Thank um, you. Good. Awesome. Um, so I'm not sure about Hinduism and Buddhism and stuff, but doesn't Judaism not offer salvation to converts? So Probably that's makes one, the work a lot harder. In the modern era, that's been one of the big controversial aspects, even in the entire existence of the state of Israel, right? When you have an official state religion, if you, even if you pretend you don't, then you're going to determine who's in, who's out. And so only recently were certain types of reform rabbis and reform conversions accepted in Israel. When I say recently, I'm saying within the past month, right? And, and, and it's been a big issue in terms of the fact that uh, by and large African Jews uh, are, are often homeless people in, in the occupied territories, right? And, and so while they're claiming lineage, not conversion, it's not being recognized. And then you have all these Americans that are claiming conversion without lineage and it's beginning to get recognized. But yeah, that is, uh, at least in modern Judaism, uh, a big thing. I don't know how far back it goes, actually. Uh -huh. um, so, I mean, like, is that sort of a, like, reason why, like, I can't, like, walk into a, like, synagogue, especially in Chicago? Because I, you know, like, I live down the street from one, and I wanted to go in the other day. Uh, I don't know, they turned me back. Maybe I was wearing my, you know, dopey too big or something. I don't know, but. Yeah, I, I think you're just a scary man. You know, uh, where was the Chicago Sinai congregation? Because they probably would have let you in. Um, it, it's the 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 Anch Emet uh, um, synagogue in Lakeview. Oh, like on Broadway. Yeah, um, they they probably saw you and thought, "Man, what does this guy want?" Uh, yeah. No, I mean, usually they tend to be pretty friendly. Hmm. So, in any case, all of those best. So, bring us back to 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 this aisle. Uh, <clears throat> what do we see here at the core of what's being stated here? So true religion belongs with Allah. And then if people are arguing with you, your response is, I've submitted to Allah. And here we're speaking about the prophet, so have my followers, peace be upon him. Good. So what is one point that can be taken from there? If people are arguing with you about religion, it seems as though it's better not to get into the argument. I mean, it's one thing if two people are engaging to learn, but if it's confrontation on faith, okay, I've submitted. And then those who have been given the book and those who are unlettered, again, we said that unlettered here doesn't mean that you don't know how to read and write. It's often understood people who have not received a book you can ask if you, if, do you submit? If they submit, they're on the right path. If they're not, your job is just to convey the message. So this is repeating the point we made before that ours is not a missionary tradition in the sense that our, our job is to get people to all become Muslim. Our job is to give people the message. But if people want to fight, you don't fight. If people don't want the message, Alhamdulillah. So then what type of sentiment should that create about us when we look and talk and practice the deen? What do you think? 
if some principles here is, okay, we've submitted, we're not gonna fight about it. And, and then we can invite them, have you submitted? If not, okay, yeah, they haven't. Your job is just to convey. Allah is watching over everything. What do you think? What, what type of disposition should this put in the common believer? Hatem. I mean, there's a, a slight sense of responsibility attached to it, but also it it should like it should teach us to speak to people with kindness. Yeah, in it. I don't really know how to explain what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say, but like we, we should have a sort of uh, baseline kindness that, um, that, you know, we acknowledge that you may not, that like this may not be the message for you right now. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, God Thank guides whom, and, and that Allah guides whomever he wills. And if uh, I fulfilled my obligation to you by, by sort of, bringing you this information um mm -hmm. but if you have not yet been guided i can't do anything about that mm -hmm. and so so to take that point even deeper that this kindness should come from a certain amount of strength and confidence so periodically we will hear stories about about muslims going totally up in arms about an insult often directed at the prophet we see upon him you know whether they're talking about france charlie hebdo whether they're talking about the the story of the uh, the the Christian woman in in Pakistan, um, I forgot what her name was, but uh, is it Asia Bibi? Yes. Uh, yeah. And so so why is it that people are getting so upset? And I want both types of explanations. I want both a sympathetic explanation for the Muslims. Why are we getting upset? And then as well as a critical explanation. What do you think? would be a sympathetic explanation for why Muslims are getting so upset at these, at these uh, uh, comments. Yeah, uh, Adnan and then Asim. Uh, well, I think part of it is like, uh, not only is it disrespectful to sort of what we perceive as our own traditions and faith and what we hold as sacred, but I think there's also a dynamic of uh, an abuse, like a power dynamic at play, right? Mm -hmm. Rooted in like history and all mm -hmm. those other things. Colonial. So the part of it is there is this whole, you know, it's not just uh, insulting of of our beliefs, but it's the people in power who are who are making these jokes. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, uh, Asim and Um, I I also think it just feels like you know people like Muslims sort of love the prophet more than their own family in many ways mm -hmm. and and that if it, it feels like if you you know attack him or make jokes about him or something like that then it's um that's something that people consider off limits mm -hmm. yeah and that sentiment i believe all of us should have that if anyone is disrespecting the prophet peace be upon him every one of us should be completely offended, right? If anyone is disrespecting my mother, I should be completely offended. That's not the same thing as how we react, you know, but yeah, I do believe all of us should be very offended 
not just when the prophet peace be upon him is being attacked, but any prophet is being attacked. So think about how much mockery there is for Jesus salam, in our society. You know, just if you if you type in a Google search for for any uh, adjective with Jesus, you're going to see a whole bunch of pictures. So cool Jesus, angry Jesus, etc. Jesus on a motorcycle. Um, you're going to see it all. Uh, Zishan. I don't think everyone has answered the sympathetic part. Um, the, the critical part, I think, is partly answered as well. To say, I think it's uh, people feel it's a double standard. Uh, yeah. People people project. Uh, it's also political in a way as well. But it's also uh, if you know you can't touch the Holocaust, you can touch this all the way. I do sense though that this this outrage is much bolder and much newer. Like I grew up in the '90s. So like I'm an '80s kid. I don't recall such outrage. I mean, of course, you had the Amadea movement and all that, but but the frequency of this has increased in the past, and that might be a social media and all thing also. Mm-hmm. But the frequency of this and the vocal rage, like we like we just had this recently, out like expel the France ambassador, burn all your cities in your own countries, your Muslim countries. I don't get it, but you know that was outrage. It's just like kind of. Uh-huh. Uh, so forth. So I think people are just kind of upset that there's a double standard and more people know about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think building on this point, this latter part of what you said, I think also there is just a very deep sense of powerlessness that, you know, that everything is unfair, that we're being completely exploited. And and so so like Dr. King's line, you know, violence is the, is what is it? Violence is the voice of the oppressed or the right is the voice of the oppressed. Uh, there could be something else uh, along those lines. Uh, Dr. Malahat and then uh, Asim. I think that the specific issue you just mentioned about Pakistan is, is, is very complex because the, you know, the society have extreme and then, you know, the, the international engagement of those issues right away on the same countries actually is going to be creating the mockery on the Prophet Sallallahu is causing the, you know, the, on the, on the level of, a uh, common person level is causing a big frustration, as you just mentioned, and that's 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 the that then the sympathetic part will be go away, and then second side that you know the um, the weaknesses of the political parties, right? That you know they make a decision based upon their uh, the political viewpoint rather than they make a decision based upon a justice system, so that 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 become like a biggest issue. Mm. Uh, so, so the, regarding the last point, um, uh, uh, let me know if I'm understanding correctly. You're basically saying the politicians are seeing that it's advantageous to to raise a big fuss. Right. And, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That Mumtaz Qadri issue, right? I mean, this the one, the fifty, sixty percent of the uh, the population will uh, is considering him as a hero, but he got like you know uh, hanged because of mm-hmm. this uh, the person he killed. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, those kind of things are happening in the society when the, the social ills are so deep that uh, um, the, the justice system is completely paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome. Um, when we talk about disrespect to any prophet, mm-hmm. um, do we consider the existence of the Trinity as disrespect uh, of Jesus? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, uh, it can be. Um, or at the very least, it would be considered disrespect of Allah. But because that is doctrine, um, then it's it's a different. It's a it would be its own special category. I mean, it's a level of doctrine that the Quran itself is addressing. Okay. Right? Uh, yeah, I think the 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 question I'm asking is 
does disrespect have to be intentional? Mm. Uh, I would, uh, I'm trying to think of an unintentional type of disrespect that should not, that could or should offend us, but I'm, what would be, uh, see if you can think of an unintentional outside of doctrine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's why I asked about the Trinity. I don't think I can. Yeah, we got it firm. Okay, so so what we have here, what I want to draw our attention to from this ayah is that as a believer, there should be a certain amount of self confidence that you have that then permits you to have a certain amount of of you know we agree to disagree, uh, as opposed to what happens a little bit too often is that. If someone is arguing, someone's attacking, then it's too easy to go into fight or flight mode. Uh, uh, I also do think that uh, the way that uh, Jesus is joked about in Western culture, uh, I don't think it's too long before the the normalizing of jokes about the prophet, peace be upon him, uh, is also gonna be here, you know? And, and I mean, that's its own thing. But finishing that, uh, Salia, finishing that point off, um, Allah is watcher over uh, his servants. He's seeing everything that's happening. Okay. Uh, yes, Salia. Um, I think Surah Al Kafirun, um, one of the last four surahs, also refers to the same point, Lakum Dinukum Waliyadin. And, you know, just have, like you said yourself, like have confidence and you don't have to really argue. Do you think that really refers to the same point? So yeah. the concept is the same, yeah. Um, uh, but the audiences are two different audiences. But yeah, I would say the, con the point is the same. The essential point is the same. I'm sorry, did you have more? No, this, this okay. is it. Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, and so so the the basic difference in context is that here the prophet peace be upon him is doing da'wah to the to the people of the book uh, al kafirun comes out at the very end of the prophet's period in Makkah. It may have been his last revelation uh, before before he goes on the hijrah after having spent thirteen years doing da'wah to to the people of Makkah, and now it's reached the point. Now it goes from being ya kaumi, oh my people, to ya ayuhal kafirun. So when prophets are saying ya kaumi. Yeah, as we see the different prophets in the Quran doing, there's hope that they will still become believers. But then at some point, the door is shut or the prophet gives up and then it becomes, and so Noah, Nuh, peace be upon him, he calls on his people for 900 years. Then, then he's like, all right, I'm done. You know, I'm paraphrasing. And then he goes to Allah in Surah, uh, as recounted in Surah Nuh, Surah 71, saying, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, but then they all these people calling against me, wipe them out. Of course, in the case of the Prophet, peace be upon him, most of those people eventually, 10 years later, after fighting as a Prophet, they did become Muslim. But the point is that the, the sentiment you're making is still the same. Uh, Musab is asking, what if someone insults the Sahaba, how big of a sin is that? Uh, I'm unable to answer the question of how big of a sin it is it, but it is also something that you should find offensive um, uh, when someone is disrespecting or mocking the companions, peace be upon them. I mean, as, as it is, the basic principle is that people should not be insulted and uh, uh, such. The people who are sacred to anyone should not be insulted by anyone. 
but um, um, it's beyond me to tell you what the weight of it is. Uh, Dr. Lahat. I was just thinking about yesterday when we discussed about, uh, you know, you mentioned the Prophet give a dawa um, yeah. to his, the people of his time, and you used the example of Abu Talib. Yeah. Uh, and you said that, you know, the best dies on the face of earth, give a dawa somebody. So the hujja will be completed, right? For that mm-hmm. side. Uh, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that, right? That Muhammad is Khatim and Nabiin. And we are, the, the Muslims will be taking the message to that far. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that part that, you know, the message can be customized in over time. As you mentioned earlier, 20 years down the road is going to be very specific customized or self-customized messages. Uh, so if the Dai is Dai character will will set the the judgment to the person who accept or refuse the dawa. Repeat that question. I didn't understand. So so you know the Dai. So you're saying that the the hujja has been completed on Abu Talib. Okay. So so get rid of all the terminology. Just uh, uh, give the the story. So the story is that you know if we are giving to somebody's dawa. Yeah. And we unable to provide the dawa on that level. Of course, we cannot able to provide the dawa on the full maximized operational excellence level, right? Yeah, sure. So is that will be a caveat on the day of judgment because Allah SWT will yeah. judge everybody with just. Yeah, potentially. So inshallah. So so that so where do we stand for that part, right? That because mm. the message need to go. Uh, that at the last sermon, Muhammad said that you know now I convey to you. Now you convey mm-hmm. to the rest of the, the both. Those are not here. Yeah. So that that chain, and then you earlier mentioned that the, as a community, as a body of the community, we are getting the message to fun, one generation to another one. Mm-hmm. So if the ma- if we are like reducing, or we are not, we are imperfecting the message five percent every time. Sure. I'm just using an analogy, yeah. that you know, yeah. hypothesis that you know what's going to happen to the message to the end of the generation. Yeah, that's well, exactly what you would imagine is going to happen. That with each generation, the message is going to get more and more watered down, right? Okay, so so you have a lot of really really rich points, Marshall, in your question. So so the first one is that um, I give the message as best as I can to to this person, right? Uh, and it may be that there's one hole in my message and they can't hear it. And this is a very simple example. Uh, uh, I've spoken, I don't even know to how many churches. Okay. But I know when I go into the church, especially if it's a church of people who are white, the first thing that they're gonna see is that I'm an outsider, right? No accent, okay. all of my education is here. And I'll, I'll even make the point that, you know, uh, depending if it's, especially if it's a church here that, yeah, I went to high school here my sister went to high school there. So for so on to emphasize that I'm about as close to being a son of the soil as possible, even though I was born in Pakistan. Right. But in the same way that the prophets were sent to their own people, most people here will still see me as an outsider, not necessarily uh, uh, Latinx, meaning uh, Mexican, Puerto Rican, such not necessarily African-American, but sometimes both of them as well. Because I've even had conversations with Mexicans, as uh, Ishan shocked. Uh, I've even had conversations with Mexicans who spoke of themselves as indigenous, but not me. Right, and so my whole uh, introduction could have been as perfect as possible, but they still couldn't hear the message. Right, and so that's always going to be the case. 
you know, and so you have a prophet who's one of his own people, peace be upon him, you know, the best of all people, the most beautiful of all words. And someone says no to that. That's very different than I'm speaking and someone here says no. And I mean, like I've said before, there was a period of time 10 years ago where I was giving a thousand talks a year and may I accept them all, but you know, I wonder, you know, how tiny the actual impact was, you know, obviously, hopefully it was ginormous, but the point is that, and realistically, it was another speech for, for, you know, this particular Sunday, this particular Monday for, for, for most people. And, and so, so, so that's the first part of your question. Second part of your question uh, is, yeah, it is the responsibility of every generation to figure out how to practice their Islam. And the analogy that we find in the Hadith literature is that the Prophet peace be upon him speaks of the whole deen as like this rug. And with each generation, it's like you're pulling away one of the strings of the rug. And, and so then the Khilafah string has been pulled away, right? And then, and then the obligation to pray in the masjid in most Muslim societies, that's when it's getting pulled away, right? And so eventually there's going to be, you know, more and more strings are getting pulled away until there's, you know, there's almost nothing. And then you reach the point where it's hard to have the deen, like it's hot coals. So that is the long-term future, yes. But that should also not make us hopeless. You know, it's just basically saying the challenge is bigger. But there will be that era in the future where people will say, you know, yeah, my grandfather used to say something like, la ilaha illallah. And some of you heard from me before, I've had students here in Chicago with last names like Hussein, who had never heard Al-Fatiha before. You know, they're taking a class with me on Islam. I'm playing Al-Fatiha. They're like, yeah, I feel like I've heard that before. I think my dad, my dad knows this. And, and so a lot of our interactions with Muslims may not even reflect most of American Islam. Uh, this might still be the minority in terms of the rest of the Muslim population throughout America. You know, that we all have some connection to each other based on deen. Zishan. Uh, I think that resonates. wanted to share a quick story. I'm, I'm hosting within BCG um, a first time thing for an Eid, Eid al-Fitr uh, awareness thing. And I was able to round up like the four Muslims <laughs> partners to talk about it what was interesting was like one of the the north american leads um she was helping me organize and then she turned and says her name's laura and she says well oh i i know this tradition this my grandmother was chechen and she used to do it and he used to do it. But, but you know it was a different name it was an idol for they call it something different yeah bite them. yep so that the, that that so completely seen that I do want to ask, though, um, is this more an American thing? Because I feel, at least in like in terms of Pakistan, and in, in at least specifically Pakistan, I guess I don't know about Indonesia and other places. There seems to be even more hardline movement towards as a reaction to this, like they, as they they get more and more ritualistic and trying to stick to the the as a uh, you know this danger but people are kind of aware of Islam is slipping away everything is a threat to Islam like everything mm-hmm. social media and everything is Islam so they even get more ritualistic and they mm-hmm. push even more pieces so do you think this is more in, in, a, in the western societies where it's just harder to 
practice any religion? So I think uh, if we look at the experience of Christianity in America, we'll probably find a lot more parallels with Islam in Pakistan. You know, that you have this whole resurgence of, of this, this anti-knowledge right wing uh, that is uh, very aggressively trying to seize control of all power in America. And I think there we would find some parallels with, with what we're seeing with Muslims in Pakistan, with what we're seeing in Hindus in India, with what we're seeing with Buddhists in, in Myanmar. And I think a lot of that is being motivated uh, less by just the swarm of ideas and more just by the, the shifting economies uh, because of globalization. Meaning all the places where, where Trump power is growing. All the places where this this right wing evangelical force is growing are also places like the Rust Belt, you know, where you have complete dysfunction, breakdown of society, breakdown of family, and such. And actual church attendance is not even that high, but the affiliation is is very very aggressive. And and uh, and and so uh, all the people, you know, when I look at all these guys that I grew up with that are super hardcore in that same universe. And so I'm talking about, you know, Mexicans who are hardcore right-wing Trump supporters, you know. Uh, And what seems to be the recurring sentiment is this deep, deep terror about the world and about the future. And so one way to approach it is to be afraid. Another way to approach it is to overcompensate with this arrogance version of religion. And I think there's probably some similarities uh, all across the world, across these different traditions. In some ways, some people are aligning themselves in terms of religion, and other people are just abandoning religion. You know, uh, I think uh, when we look at you know what's happening in terms of mi- the Middle East and Syria, um, you know, what is the future going to be in terms of religion? I think we're going to see similarities there that some people are just going to give up, and some people are going to become super hardliners. I think that's the next immediate phase. So whether or not uh, American Islam is probably different dynamics than Pakistani Islam and Egyptian Islam, but American Islam is probably closer to just religion in general in America. Christianity in America, I think, is closer to these other things. What do you think? Interesting. Could not think about that, but yes. Uh, uh, let me come back to the IN Saudi. I'll get to your question, your comment in just a moment, Shalom. In fact, um, while I'm pulling this up, um, let me let me give you the floor. Um, go ahead. Uh, no, I just wanted to mention a personal experience. You can go ahead and uh, <clears throat> continue. Okay, cool. Thank you. So yeah, so so the point I want to take for our purposes is that uh, when it comes to even our conception of the dean, it does require some amount of trust and confidence in Allah. Yeah whether we're doing dot war or not, I mean, all of us get hit by Islamophobia, whether it's, it's these public preachers or whether it might be an experience that happens in, in the workplace or, or, or something. But the disposition you should have, what I'm suggesting is yes, if the prophet is getting insulted, absolutely you should be offended, right? In the same way, if somebody's insulting my daughter, my mother especially, I should absolutely get offended. But that's different than, than how we respond. It's like, all right, you know, you yours, like Sadia mentioned to you, yours to me, mine. And then, in fact, um, let's keep that as our key point for today. Uh, Sadia, let me go back to you. If you want to um, share, what you want to share. 
Sorry. Um, <clears throat> so um, I just wanted to, um, you know, share a personal experience um, based on what you just said before you were talking about the Aya, is that um, in Pakistan, how over the years visiting almost every year, I have seen the stark difference between the practice in Islam and the outlook of people. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, there was a time, so every time I go, I make sure that I go and meet my teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I go to the university or like colleges and schools, I mean, I see a stark difference between like when I was studying there, it was hard to see women in abaya or boys in shilwar kameez. <laughs> when you're saying hard to see, you mean uh, there weren't many or it was a difficulty? Uh, sorry, uh, I mean, there weren't many, you know, ah, okay. Okay. outwardly Muslim looking people, you mm. know, um, okay. but now over the years, it's so hard to find not so Muslim looking people, mm. <laughs> both ends, both in boys and girls. And so, and, and I see that a lot in the, in the youth, among the youth, like, you know, um, and also my generation. Um, so, you know, I find it very interesting that you don't see a lot of middle ground there anymore. Mm-hmm. I think there, and it seems to me that there is an identity crisis too, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which felt by Muslims globally because of Islamophobia and all. But yes, um, you know, true to your point that, you know, there's two extremes that you can see in the society in Pakistan, especially in the big cities, uh, which is which is hard to digest. Um, so just wanted to share yeah. that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, um, what is her name? Um, the Harvard professor. Uh, I have suddenly forgot her name. It was in my mind. She, she wrote a book on hijab in Egypt. And she was talking about how in the 60s, clothing, women's clothing is completely different than how it was when she revisited, you know, 20 years ago, uh, specifically in terms of, of women covering their hair and such. And she identified it more as a political move, an identity move, than an actual faith move. And, and I think there is a global search for, for, for identity all across the world, uh, especially in response to some sort of despondency or a feeling of powerlessness and such. Uh, Ahant. Is that the Iranian woman you were talking about? Uh, no, she's, she's Egyptian. Um, Egyptian. And it'll come back to me. Leila, Leila Ahmad. Ahmad. Leila Ahmad, yes, Leila yes, Ahmad. yes. Yeah, thank you, yeah, yeah. Ahant. Um, hi, so you had mentioned a story about a student who you know, like vaguely heard of like Fatiha and, uh, and such. Um, you know, do you think that's right around the corner, like you were saying? Or so the question that I'm re- so so the specific case is that there's these two sisters, twin sisters, last name Hussein, and uh, I'm, I don't want you guys to all start scrambling. Oh, do I know these people? And and so I was the unit was on the Quran, and and, and so I played these passages. And so then I pointed to the people with Muslim names, you know, have you heard this before? Can you tell us what it is? And they said, yeah, we feel like we've heard it before, but we're not sure. And then I talked about the whole idea of a hafiz, someone who's memorizing the Quran and such. 
And then they said, yeah, I think my dad is. So they texted their dad and the dad probably had like four surahs memorized, but as far as they knew, their dad was someone who had the whole Quran memorized in terms of the context of our discussion. And the question is, is that the anomaly, the future, or is that the norm? Because what that also made me realize is that the overwhelming majority of my interactions with Muslims, again, speaking as a teacher in the academy, is with Muslims that I have some connection to their Muslim identity, right? The people who are in the MSA are often not the same as the people who are taking my classes. There's many people who take my classes who are active in the MSA, but there's many people who take my classes that, that have never come to an MSA event. Uh, and I've, I have had students who literally on the first day of class, when I asked them, why are you taking my class? will say, because, you know, I don't know anything about, about this. My parents never taught me or, you know, I'm sick of how my parents have taught it to me and this is the last hope. But I'm suggesting, however, that those girls are closer to a norm than an, an anomaly. It's just that... Uh, for most of us, I'm suggesting even in this room without knowing, by knowing most of you well, a few of you I don't know very well, uh, I'm suggesting that most of the people we probably interact with uh, have, have some sort of loose connection to the community or strong, and then the family of, of all of us. I don't think we have to go that far, Ahmad. I mean, I think yeah. it's really, I, I struggle with a lot of these conversations we've been having the past few days. Yeah. Not so much not so much not appreciating them, but as someone who has raised now three children, one is yeah, 22, sure. one is 19, um, and one is 12. Um, and then both my spouse and I are, are what we would call first generation, both born in the U.S. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I see that that's more of a reality. I mean, when mm -hmm. I talk to peers where I'm like, I, I'll be happy if my kids believe in God and mm -hmm. have good attributes. And then I get criticized of why have you watered faith down? And it's like, wait, where, where are you living? Like, yes, I, I just think there's just a real big disconnect of what is at odds mm -hmm. of how much is at odds on the grounds. Mm -hmm. One and I also think there's a huge disconnect of how human psychology works. Mm -hmm. yes. um, you know, not, yeah. yeah, I mean, just not even myself. Um, I, I can see it psychologically. I can see where my ties are and where they're not. Um, and I try not to beat myself up about it. Mm -hmm. I just try to look at it contextually of what my reality is. Um, but I, I think these are, you know, to me, these are the more authentic kind of conversations because we're, we're looking at what is what are the structural, cultural, mm -hmm. psychological things that, uh, especially young people, are having to to really um, conflict with. We can all sit here in our own little. I can sit in my safe space and yes. little bubble, mm -hmm. and speak to all I want and do all I want. But honestly, it's my kids who I just um, and and I, I think I my Eamon and I we've both been someone who is a product i know definitely mean more than even amen entrenched in our community upbringing yeah, and you know seeing my own kids um of of just the struggle of creating that healthy identity and what it means mm -hmm. is has been very challenging and i know you know that but no, no, but it's good. no thank you for sharing that and as you were sharing that you reminded me of my experience at the beginning of the school year when uh, i received the list of all the incoming people with muslim names and, no, correction, all the people who on the application self-identify as Muslim. And this year, 
10 of these students, when I reached out to them, sent them a letter uh, inviting them, you know, let's, let's, let's meet and, and such. 10 students said, I'm not Muslim, right? They all have names like Abdullah and Iftikhar and such. And, and keep in mind what I'm saying, that when they applied, they put Muslim on their application. And then nine months later, starting the school year, they're saying, I'm not Muslim, right? And I'm guessing if yeah. 10, yeah, go ahead, Asma. No, I completely, I mean, I completely agree. I've, I, I've like banged my head against the wall over and over of, you know, um, what are ways to not do things right, but just it, it, the frustration of just some of the conversations that are had within the Muslim community and then just kind of checked out of the reality of what, um, of what's on the grounds. And that's why I, all my questions, I'm sure you've noticed they're very more on like, okay, let's get to the practicality of this. Like yeah, we talk yeah, about absolutely. what this looks like on the ground um, because it's, um, I know the amount of energy I've put in and I know the amount of energy my husband, like we've put it into raising yeah, our Marshall. children mm -hmm. and I see what the result is, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. you know, I, like I said, I would be very blessed to say, okay, they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're making good decisions, good character. Um, but that's, a, like I said, the criticism, that's a very low bar. Like mm -hmm. you're not upset if they don't pray or they're not wearing their scarf or they're not fasting. I mean, I, yeah, yeah right. it's, no, I it's tough sure. and you've got your own children. I mean, it's tough. Mm -hmm. I, all I have to say, it's yeah, very absolutely. tough. Absolutely. No, I, thank you for sharing. And uh, Hunt, I think that gives you a very clear answer to, to your, your, your question. Uh, having said that, this is a good place for us to stop because I have to run to my next class again. And, and so uh, Zishan, to your question, maybe Pakistan, who to be, anyway, so. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Oh no class tomorrow I actually have to go talk uh, uh, elsewhere and so we will reconvene on Friday inshallah so no class tomorrow and once again, I do appreciate all of your participation, and I do especially appreciate the, uh, the, the whole process of trying to keep everything real and practical and relevant. That's all part of the whole goal of the, the course, and you all know me. That's usually my goal anyway. Okay. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.